Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Happy Friday the 13th. Ooh. This is when we're recording. It's Friday the 13th. I forgot about that. I know. I haven't left the house, so nothing's fallen on me yet. Just <laughs> Although our, we had trouble getting our heat on this morning. A little nervous. Oh. You know, starting to get a little cooler. Making funny. I'm going to tell my husband to fire up the wood-burning stove tonight. I think yeah. it's time. Yeah, we don't have one of those, so. But it's still fairly warm. This is, this is the time, people, to make sure your furnace works. You don't want to wait until it's 20. You know, do it when it's, you know, 50s. Just a word of advice. A little housekeeping here. So we are back back on 27 speaks with the fun lineup today and joe joe shaw is still in where bill he's he's in france oh where's the other part where's the other f word <laughs> fabulous <laughs> france. fabulous france oh there it is <laughs> fine and fabulous fabulous France. That is what Bill said, I guarantee you. <laughs> anyway, so here we are. That was Bill Sutton, who avoided saying a curse word at the top of the podcast. Hi, Bill. <laughs> Hi, Annette. I'm Bill Sutton. I'm the managing editor of the Express News Group. We also have Brendan J. O'Reilly back again. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Annette. Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor. And Catherine G. Manu, the G stands for Georgie, is in her house. Hi, Georgie. Hey, I'm Catherine Manu. A lot of people call me Georgie, and I'm the publisher of the Express News Group. And I'm Annette Hinkle. I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And also joining us is Kaylin Riley. And what are we calling you, Kaylin, these days? I mean, a lot of people call me mom, but I like to just, you know, try to remember a time where I was someone before that. So Kaylin works just fine. I will not call you mom because I don't think we're related, but that would be weird if you did, but it's Friday the 13th. So, you know, anything goes. Anything goes. <laughs> I don't think you're my mom. I don't think so. That's a whole other podcast, I guess. <laughs> Good to have you. So uh, we thought we would, you know, take a step back from the heavy duty news and talk about something fun, which is our latest um, Express Magazine, Harvest, which came out this week. Um, and um, Georgie is the fine editor of that and Kaylin has some fine stories in it. So um, this one's all about food, which is, I, I know, Georgie, this is a subject near and dear to your stomach. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about Harvest. Yeah, so this was always, I feel like we do two harvests um, a year in our Express Magazine lineup. For listeners who are not familiar with this magazine series, we produce eight of them a year. um, And usually the front half of the book is general lifestyle. So, um, you know, don't run away from this if you're not a foodie. There are other stories um, in the beginning of the book, um, history pieces, um, you know, and some community features that a lot of people will enjoy, whether they care about um, food and wine or not. Um, but we produce two of these a year. And I feel like they're the easiest ones because um, my husband and I both come from um, food service backgrounds before we were in journalism. Um, we like to cook a lot. We love our local farms. We love visiting local vineyards. So it's a really easy one to plan and a lot of fun. Um, and it's the second to last magazine of the year. Uh, our next magazine is our holiday book, which is usually the second biggest magazine um, that we produce. And we're working on that feverishly right now. And that will come out in mid-November. So we're excited to wrap another successful series of Express Magazine. So topic-wise, there's some interesting things in this one. And I think, Kaylin, you ended up writing a couple of the bigger stories in here. So do you want to talk about the stories that you wrote for this and how you found these subjects and why you were intrigued by them? Yeah, so um, I got to write two very cool features that I really enjoyed. Um, I got to write about Blue Duck Bakery and then also about um, East End Food, formerly known as East End Food. Food Institute. So um, it was really fun writing about both of these. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I I don't like to cook at all. 
but I love to eat. I love food. But really what I love most about writing for a community newspaper is telling stories of people in the community. So that's what these two stories were about. And they just so happened to be about food. But I think that food, I mean, when you talk about creating community, one of the best ways to create community is through food. You know, the whole idea of breaking bread together, having a meal together is really so important no matter where you're from or what kind of culture or tradition, you know, you, you celebrate. So um, the story on East End Food was really, really fun. So for those who don't know, East End Food is a nonprofit that really tries to help a lot of different people in the area from farmers to food producers, vendors. Um, and what it really does for a lot of people and what this story focused on is it helps people achieve their dreams. So I think that's something a lot of people can relate to whether or not their dream is to, um, you know, be a professional athlete or succeed in business or what have you. There's so many different things, but that idea of having a dream and and following it and the community stepping up to support you is what this story was all about. So East End Food operates a commercial kitchen on the campus of Stony Brook uh, University in Southampton. And they have um, a lot of different food vendors who started off making something in their kitchen and was more, you know, like a hobby, whether it's a hot sauce or um, sourdough crackers, you know, they want to, they want to step up their production. They want to get licensed in a way where they can sell their products in a bigger store, um, bring it to a bigger market. And maybe they don't know where to start. They don't have a, you know, once you get to a certain level, you can't be making the food in your own home kitchen anymore. Um, East End Food provides a place for them to do that. It provides the, all the guidance and support they need, whether it's in terms of something as simple as updating their social media or, um, you know, getting the getting the food made if they can't be there all the time. There's there's an executive chef there, Jay Lippin, who's just great. Um, you know, sometimes he's making the food off of these recipes or the people themselves are, are in there doing it. You know, the day I went there to take some photos, um, uh, Marilena was making her sourdough crackers and um, it was just really nice to see the way they all kind of interact together, help each other out. And everyone really just said glowing and positive things about how key this 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 community organization is and how important it is for them and that they might not even be doing this if it wasn't for for that support. A key thing is that they need the commercial kitchen space. Like you can't operate a, a food business legally, I don't think, unless you are operating out of an approved commercial kitchen. And that's sort of, I think, the big the big um, role that they fill, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you've seen um, you've seen agritourism and agriculture evolve. So, like all industries. Um, you know, that have experienced disruption, which agriculture experienced, you know, decades ago, have to kind of reinvent themselves. And our local farms were no different. You know, I mean, you're the farm stand, you know, certainly is going to be very popular and is going to bring in lots of people. But if you're going to grow your business, like the natural way to do that is to look at creating food products. But the problem out here was commercial kitchen space is so challenging. And then if you do find it, it's really expensive to rent. Um, so this was like, I remember we talked for years about um, this being developed like in EPCAL and, you know, that's where all the farmers were going to go for their commercial kitchen space. And it's really nice to see that this has developed in Southampton. And it feels like a really natural extension of Stony Brook Southampton, even though I know this is its own nonprofit, but it's like, you know, East End Food is educational. It's offering professional development they're holding like all of these classes and you're seeing this nonprofit that's kind of rebranded itself really start to grow fast in the last year. And, you know, I think this is only the beginning of what they're going to offer um, local food producers um, and consumers. Um, it seems like they've got a lot of plans on the horizon, which is exciting. Are they going to keep that kitchen in, in Southampton, Kaylin, or is that part of the, um, renovation that they're doing to the um to the to the building in riverhead yeah so they are in the middle of you know still doing some fundraising because they have they operate an indoor farmers market um in riverhead and they are in the process of really trying to 
expand their space there and bring that commercial kitchen ultimately so they have it in Riverhead all in one location there. Because while the, you know, the South the kitchen in Southampton is a great location for some, especially people that are based further east, like, you know, Amagansett or East Hampton, but it would be really, you know, having that um, indoor farmer's market also gives the producers a place to sell their food, but it's, mm. it's right at the apex of, you know, the North and South Forks. And so it really, um, they, they want to bring that commercial kitchen there. That's the long-term goal, but they're still in, in the middle of fundraising for, for completing that big project there. And that's where they do most of their workshops, right, Kaylin? Yeah. We spoke with Kate Fulham, who's the executive director of East End Food. We did a podcast with her a number of weeks ago. And I believe she said that they were going to eventually move out of the Southampton, um, mm -hmm. Southampton space altogether and have all their operations under, like you said, one roof, which will be yeah. good. It's very centrally located. So that's not a bad, not a bad thing. Um, mm -hmm. but what, what, what about the people that you met there, Kaylin? Did you find, I'm curious if the, if the, the, the food makers there, had they, is this, something that they envisioned um, always doing? And was it a big hurdle for them? Like without East End Food, was this sort of just a pipeline dream that would have never necessarily happened? I just wondered if it kind of pushed them into this role um, in a way that maybe they wouldn't have been able to make it happen without the help. Yeah, I mean, almost all of them said that they either wouldn't have been able to do that, have the businesses they have at all, or would have had to have them on such a smaller scale if it, if they hadn't, if East End Food didn't exist. Um, you know, from the guys that make the pasta, Lisolina Pasta, um, everyone making the the hot sauces, the barbecue sauces, the sourdough crackers. I mean, they really all kind of said the same thing that this, this, this nonprofit is helping them in so many different ways and that they really never would have been able to pursue this, this dream, but it was, it's something they're all very passionate about and they wanted to do and that they've, you know, really been able to take it to this next level. And they, they all expressed like so much gratitude and Jay Lippin, who's the executive chef there has been really valuable as well. I mean, it, cause it, it, everything is a matter of time and money. You know, some of the people that are doing, are making these products, they might have other things going on. They might not always necessarily have the time to get in the kitchen, replenish their stock, but their recipes are there. And then Jay and his team can make the food, package it. Um, then, then there are people who have the time to do it, but they just didn't have the place to do it. So it's offering a lot of different, everyone's needs are a little bit different, but because they're so all encompassing and do so much, they can, they can kind of offer whatever it is that, that people need. They're really sort of like a full service nonprofit in that kind of way. And I feel like we've seen like a lot of people post COVID kind of decide to reinvent themselves and create new yeah. careers for themselves and, you know, pursue a side hustle that kind of ends up becoming a full-blown thing when it finds success. And so it's great to see space for that kind of creativity and that reinvention to thrive. Right. And really when people are, the other common thread with all of these small businesses is that they're using locally sourced ingredients and mm. products. And so it's really just everyone's winning because all the different farms are now they have people that their product, their, their raw materials, their ingredients are in demand because there's all these small businesses are able to exist now, you know, so they need, you know, they need Amber waves and balsam farm. They, they're what they're growing is being, is being put into these products and then the community people in the community can buy them and it does everything. It's good for the planet, obviously, because you're not sourcing quite as much food from, you know, far flung locations. But Kate Fulham also has pointed out too, that creating a thriving like local food economy is really important, especially in a, after the lessons of the pandemic where we saw all kinds of shortages in terms of, of food, um, you know, when you're producing things more locally, it's 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 going to be more readily available. You don't get caught up in those supply chain issues. 
Right, exactly. I remember during the you know beginning of the pandemic, or maybe it was like the middle of the pandemic, when we were still having issues getting food part of the pandemic, we would get Balsam Farm delivery um, every Wednesday. And you go online and you place your order. And Joe from Rowdy Hall was like doing a second job delivering food for Balsam Farm. And he dropped our box of vegetables and and they had other like local products and stuff like that. And, you know, just going back to Kaylin and what she was saying about, you know, their sourcing from the farms, you know, it's very cyclical because they source from the farms, they go produce this, but you go to Balsam Farm, you go to Amber Waves, all of the producers that Kaylin has been talking about and that are in her story are on those shelves for sale at mm. those locations too. Um, so it's like a really good relationship. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Raro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks is brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books. Independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton. They buy books, collections, libraries, individual titles. Very easy process. They handle everything. Do you have books to sell? Call or email today or visit SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations, including office positions. We did a winter CSA one year, and and CSA, if you don't know, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. So it was a subscription service, and every week we would get a box of things from an East End farm, and they don't tell you what you're going to get. You just agree there's a certain number of weeks and a certain size of delivery where you might say, give me a delivery for a two fam- a two person household or a four person household. And we ended up getting things that we have never seen in our lives or just never grew or, or ate in our lives like sunchokes. So mm. then it becomes this really cool thing of familiarizing yourself with this product or produce you never knew existed. And if you've never done a CSA, you should try it. They're not incredibly expensive you're actually avoiding all the overhead of the middlemen of those farms selling to some vendor who then has to sell to you. So when you just get them directly from the farm, the farm is doing well for itself in this scenario. You're not really overpaying for what you're getting. And there are opportunities for you every time you're there to pick up whatever farm stand processed foods they have there, whether it be the the jams or the jellies or the, the butters that they make on site. And some of the farms, I believe you could just add these things to your subscription. Like you might want to say like, yes, I like the CSA, but please also throw in a, a, a bottle of hot sauce on every fourth delivery. There's just so much potential where we are being, even if you never drive past a farm, you're probably close to a farm closer mm-hmm. than you know, if you live anywhere on the East end. So what's your favorite sun choke recipe? Oh, um, it was a couple years ago, and I will divulge that not everybody um, agrees with sunchokes, or should I say sunchokes don't agree with them. It's also known as <laughs> artichoke. Uh, so you do have to like take it easy when you start to eat sunchokes. Um, but I think we kind of serve them the way you might serve potatoes, but they have a much different flavor. And a really cool thing about them is they're basically, they look like sunflowers and what you're eating is the roots. So are they more related to the artichoke or the potato then? Do we know? You've, you're going to send me down a rabbit hole of having to research (laughs) everything about Jerusalem artichokes now. Um, it was a couple years ago when, uh, we did get these the first time and I did, look up all of these things that you're asking, but it's been long enough that I haven't retained it. All right. So I have the idea for your next harvest magazine, all those weirdo vegetables. None of us have ever tasted or cooked or know anything about. It's a really, it's a really good point that Brendan brings up Uh, and the winter CSAs especially are like super, super affordable. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you will definitely get more than your money's worth on the winter. Some of the summer ones are a little expensive, but that is the cool thing. Like you get these random products, Um, sunchokes, you can make like a really kind of like potato-y leek soup out of sunchokes. Those are really good. Um, 
you know, and you can also, you know, you can do the box CSA, which is traditionally what you find most places. And then you have places like Quail Hill, which is a Peconic land trust property in Amagansett, where if you join Quail Hill, you actually harvest the vegetables there yourself, um, which can be very cool and really fun. And it can also be really time consuming and annoying when you've got like hot, sweaty kids that want to leave the farm. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you're working on deadline. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. The summer that we took on the, the Quail Hill CSA, my daughter was like maybe one. So she was strapped on my back. I was working full time at the paper and I'm out there harvesting stuff every two, like Saturday in the hot sun. I'm like, why did I get a farm labor? <laughs> you want to live in your best little house on the prairie life. You have this like pastoral vision of like your children like picking the food and eating it and being like, Mom, I love vegetables. And I will say that probably happened like 30% of the time, but the other 70%, it was a little bit um of work. But I will say, you know, the years that we did do the Quail Hill, um, you know, CSA, the bounty was like so unreal, like how much food you were bringing home. I had to learn how to can because I was like, I can't like, I can't waste this. And mm -hmm. we ended up being like a super vegetable forward family right. during those years because you're like, I've got all these vegetables. Like I got to cook them. Like, bag of root beer. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I think for this is turning into a story idea meeting slash podcast. And I could write you a very humorous, very like real life relatable essay called I went to the Quail Hill CSA with my children and well, <laughs> had a lot of vegetables and people had a lot of feelings. <laughs> you haven't done that yet though, right? This is a something that you've not yet done. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. We can arrange that. That's a good idea. <laughs> so do we want to talk about your um, blue duck? story as well yeah so keith and nancy chorus who own blue duck bakery it's just like their 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 story is so great because it's really just a story of two people that had a passion for make, building a business together and they went through a lot at, in, at the start you know they're they're building they like finally got in their building in southampton and then they had a fire and it you know they had a lot of it's it's a great story for anyone who's ever thought of owning a business or starting a business from scratch or or has because it's just a real almost like an American dream kind of tale really because it's just two people who really wanted to start a business and they they experienced some ups and downs you know they had gone to this business school and put a proposal together and the, their professor told them like this isn't gonna work well their pro professor was definitely wrong so they ended up just having this really successful bakery with a footprint on the north and south fork and um they gave us an amazing recipe for a sauerkraut sourdough now when i start to seriously consider making a bread from scratch you know that the recipe sounds enticing because i as previously mentioned i don't i don't cook things my my son's favorite meal that i make is Sabret cocktail franks from frozen from the grocery section so i actually like have told myself will i actually do it i don't know but i was like i actually want to try to make this bread that's how good the recipe sounded and then when they sent the photo of it as a as the bread for a reuben sandwich i was like wow this is just a fall this sounds like something that would be absolutely delicious to make in the fall but they're they're expert bread makers but they're bakery they make pies they make everything and they're really um, just a great story of, of two people who had a dream and achieved it in, in their business. Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. 
This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27East.com slash subscribe, and thank you. And for the record, you have not yet made the um, sauerkraut. I have that KitchenAid mixer. Someone got it for me when I got married. And I've used it to make chocolate chip cookies. And that's literally (laughs) one of these days. I'm going to find that bread hook and I might, I might actually make bread. I was actually going to during the pandemic and then I couldn't get yeast. And I was like, this is you trying to tell me to stay in my lane and not. Well, nobody could. Mm -hmm. I was going to say like the rest of the universe. (laughs) Yeah. You know, don't go with bread maker yeast because you got a hanker to try something you've never done before in the middle of the pandemic. No, but listen, I wasn't about to try to make an actual sourdough at that time so i don't know that that sounds even more complicated yeah that's at least make pizza dough because Mm -hmm. if your yeast fails you it's not as big of a deal as if compared to making a loaf of bread i buy the pre-made non-breads and i just slap sauce on them slap cheese on them and stick them in the oven (laughs) yeah don't do that wouldn't it be hilarious in like five years of kaylin's like the next great thing at the east end Food, uh, East End food. Like she finds baking in retirement. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. Gonna happen? No, that won't happen. I will buy your sourdough bread, Kaylin. I will be the, the taste tester, maybe, but not. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Georgie? If you could start any food business in the world, what would it be? Um, so like I don't have to worry about it being like financially successful. Like this is like okay. not at this <laughs> point. We haven't started this, so the sky's the limit for your food dreams. Okay. Well, so Gavin and I have always talked about if money was not an issue and we didn't need to be financially successful of it. So you didn't have the weight of that pressure on your shoulders as business owners. Um, we would totally open like a really tiny chalkboard menu, um, French bistro Mm -hmm. where it's like, there's a quiche of the day. There's a soup of the day. There's homemade bread. Um, you know, like table side Caesar salad, um you know but like like literally like 10 seats like you know where it's just like it's super small and super curated and whatever's on the menu is I mean if you just charge people like two thousand dollars a head every time they eat (laughs) but you know what no this is an interesting business model actually when we were in Rome a number of years ago we found this um this uh, Italian couple, this adorable Italian guy and his American wife. And they had, they had a little tiny restaurant space and what they did, they didn't even bother hiring staff. It was just the two of them. And they, they did a cooking class. You got there at 10 in the morning, started with Prosecco. They gave you the menu. They herded you all into the kitchen. Everybody did the work. And then you sat down for a meal together. Um, And then by two o'clock, three o'clock, they were done for the day. And they made the same amount on that as they would have by trying to do a whole dinner service. So it was that's great really neat. Yeah. And that's the other side of our dream business is that we would not actually do dinner service. Right. We would rather it be a breakfast mm-hmm. and lunch and then like grab and go situation. Yeah. But so we live in Springs where I grew up, um, you know, which is in East Hampton and, um, you know, therefore the stream is not likely to happen <laughs> while we're here. But we really like owning newspapers, so we're okay with it. We'll just write about the other people doing their food businesses, which I wanted to actually bring up as an aside. You know, you talk about somebody finding kind of a new life in food, um, you know, and Kim Caval has a short piece on her, actually her brother-in-law, um, Michael Ferran, who used to own, I think, I think I'm saying his last name right. Um, so he used to run barristers in Southampton village. Obviously that's been closed for a really long time. He owns that like super iconic restaurant. Um, and he started making focaccia bread and he sold it to a farm stand and like, it would like sell out and then he like branched into chocolate chip cookies. And now he has like this successful little bakery business, um, that just like was born out of him deciding to learn how to make focaccia bread at home. Hmm. Wow. That's cool. So wow. dreams do come true. Well, we also have, you know, Kathleen um, King of Kathleen's Cookies, who was the original Kathleen's Cookies, now Tate's. I mean, she was sort of the original sell it by the side of the road um, success story, right? 
huge success. Huge. So why do you think that is? Like why, I mean, does every place like give birth to these amazing brands that do well? Or is it because we're in such a Mecca of like movers and shakers from New York city who come out here and, and find these products and they just get a wider um, audience because you're dealing with a higher end type of clientele. I feel like with Tate's, I feel like Tate's is a little bit of a different situation. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember when, you know, it was Kathleen's cookies, like really like your cookie, your chocolate chip cookie market wasn't like as diverse and amazing as it is today. Like we had an actual cookie taste off with our beach group this summer at the beach where we did like cookie tastings of like all of these different bakeries. Cause there's so many bakeries doing like amazing chocolate chip cookies. When it was Kathleen's cookies, it was like, you know, you had like chips, Ahoy, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Like it was yeah, like these like way. really commercial yeah. processed cookies. And then here were these like buttery mm. thin, crispy chocolate chip cookies. Like you had never tasted anything like it. Or like the thin crust pizza of cookies. Yeah, exactly. And they were like the, the, they're so buttery and they're so well done. And so I feel like that success story is really just born out of like a really amazing recipe um, that you just weren't really finding anywhere at that time. So is it harder now you think to, to, to do what Kathleen did or is it easier because people are more attuned to these minor brands that they've never seen before? So I think it's probably easier in most markets because like you said, like people are into authentic, um, locally produced food. Like they want that. They want to support a local business, but also they recognize it tastes better than like the commercial stuff that's been sitting on a shelf for like, you know, ever and ever. However, out here, you know, without places like East End Food, um, you know, it's got to be super challenging to start any sort of business you know including a rent alone yeah. if you need some sort of space just whether it's a kitchen or an actual like store the rent or the part i mean like we've seen so many people just either go out of business or have to move you know whether you're talking about someplace like schmidt's even if it's a business that's already established it's like that it just becomes So we talk all the time about the affordable housing crisis, but really it seems to me that there's also a like commercial space affordability crisis as well, Mm. which, you know, that's again, another reason why someplace like East End Food is so key because it's hard enough to just be a mom and pop business. But if you can't afford these escalating rents, and you leave, what's replacing you is not going to be another mom and pop. It's going to be someplace that has some sort of franchise national kind of backing because they're the only ones that can really afford those rents. And then you're losing that. Then then you're just chips ahoying it through your life, right. basically. And you're, and you're going to get like butcher block paper in the windows all winter. So. Yeah, not in Village of Southampton. I hope not. Look in those in those windows. I know. I We could talk about that. <laughs> I mean, I think you have seen some some cases where it's not necessarily going to like some huge commercial, especially with restaurants, some huge commercial entity. But it's very wealthy people with like a lot of financial backing that are able to go and you know open and you know. Right. It's not really a level. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to put the same heart into it. You know, our end page um, book, and I wanted to do more on this and we will, um, because I think that he's just doing like super good job. And Bill and Gavin and I actually went over there um, and had lunch. Um, You know, I guess it was about a month ago, but um, Shippies, um, you know, which has reopened in Southampton Village, our end page is actually just a, a picture of their amazing large pretzel and beer cheese. Okay. So first off. Oh, it's so good. Crazy good oh beer cheese. <laughs> um, like I would recommend everybody go to Shippies and get this pretzel because it was totally fantastic. Um, Carbs, beer, cheese in one situation. What is not like unbelievably good about that? 
You got feelings about something. Well, I got to tell you, though, like as somebody who's had pretzels and beer cheese in other places, like including like Disney, like this is like authentic, amazing, like German beer cheese. And like really what he's done with the whole the place is just gorgeous. Number one, like the restoration that he did and the renovation. It's just a beautiful space. Um, And he's staying true to the menu. Um, this is John Betts, of course, I don't think I've mentioned who it is, but you know, he, you know, he decided to buy this, you know, restaurant and renovate it. And you can see like when we were there, he was there and I have a feeling he's there all the time. Um, so he's heavily involved. He's not just like, he didn't just buy it and put money into it and, you know, like off the employees go to run the business. Like he's on property, he's, you know, watching everything, he's tasting everything. And he's the former chief executive of McDonald's in, in Canada, um, you know, you have to say in Canada, in Canada, but you know, he was also a North sea native who like saw this restaurant that was so important to Southampton village did not want to see it become, you know, another upscale, you know, Italian bistro or whatever wanted it to be shippies. Um, and he reopened. So, And he's really focused on, on the local community and, and local yeah. customers. He's not mm-hmm. somebody that came in, um, trying to attract just the summer crowd. I mean, he's offering yeah. a local VIP uh, card and deals for, um, you know, for for uh, quote unquote everyday everyday folks living in the community that that uh, that can patronize an affordable restaurant in in Southampton. And how funny that he comes from like a fast food background, which is you know the antithesis of small town. Here's my shippies local vip card this is kind of neat so this is a really cool thing that he did it's really smart actually (laughs) so what he did was he has a qr code on the back so there so you can make a reservation to eat at chippies and this time of year it's probably not hard to do that and you know that's fine but in the summer it might be hard to get a table on a friday night so he has a block of tables set aside I'm, i'm not sure if it's on resi or on open table but might be open table. I think he said open table. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have this card, you can access this special block of tables that are not available to the general general public. So you can get your reservation to Shippies, but you got to have your local card. Um, I just think that's, it's a really sweet, cute marketing idea. It's like the rope, the roped off area they used to have at nightclubs in the eighties and nineties, you know, that but like for the regular people <laughs> but then you look on the other side of the road it's like do i really want to sit with them in this case i think you do i think you're exactly right because it's going to be an opposite rope line that's what's so right. fascinating you know it's like those of us who hear you're around we're on the we're on the on the good side. and i mean that if you want to endear yourself to year-round people that's the way to do it like especially well that's the thing i think it's really in- interesting i mean i don't know georgie i'm sure you remember back in the old days when um della femina used to do that amazing like winter special um do you remember that yeah so i do remember that so della femina um i was in my early 20s when gavin and i first started dating through like when we got engaged got married like that was like our restaurant which was super irresponsible because we had no money and we had no business going out to eat there all the time but you had no kids so you sort of (laughs) we had no kids so we would just justify it in our minds um and so the chef there regret it no not even for a second every meal was amazing um but the chef there michael rossi um he um when delphina closed he you know, didn't really cook anywhere for a couple of years. And then he was a part of the team that reinvented um, 1770 house, which he's been at for, you know, decades now. And he still does an amazing price fix in the winter at 1770 house. Um, Like you can get in there and have like a solid meal. I forget what the price is. It's really affordable um, for what you're getting Um, only in the off season in the summer, you know, like everybody else, they jack their rates, but they really do make it possible. If you want to enjoy a meal there, anybody can go there. And when you live here year round, it's like, how nice is that? You know, as opposed to these restaurants that, sorry, Labor Day's here, we're shut down, we'll see you next spring, as opposed to, hey, it's a cold December night, come on in for a, you know, $35 price fix or whatever, 45 or whatever it is, you know, 
um, yeah, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's just, it's being and, a little bit more community-minded. It's also sometimes nicer to go out then. Oh, way nicer. I mean, I hate to say it, but we don't do a lot of eating out in the summer. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, just, just too much. Better price, less crowds. Yeah, less crowds, all that, all that, you know. So what else is in the magazine that you, um, that you love this time around, Georgie? Um, you know, there's a, there's a few other pieces I would definitely recommend. Um, you know, first off, every, um, magazine, we do have a piece, um, called Travels with Hannah, which is with our travel writer, Hannah Selinger. Hannah writes for, um, travel publications all over the world. And, you know, we're fortunate enough to have her working with us as well. Um, and this, <laughs> this one's kind of, it's a little bit less intimate than some of the other ones we've had from her this year. Um, you know, she travels with her children and they went to beaches at Turks and Caicos where you can like have a luxury beach vacation while also dining with Elmo. <laughs> um, so it, <laughs> living the dream, man. There, there's a picture of her, her son with Elmo. Um, you know, and so, but it's, it is this kind of time of year where, and Kaylin knows this, like, you know, you're, you're making your plans if you haven't already for your school breaks, um, you know, and so I think beaches is pretty pricey, but if you have, um, you know, the kind of income for that, it might be worth checking out, um, you know, that. I mean, if you want to be rubbing shoulders with Elmo, you got to pay up the dough. I mean, your kids are only little. got to pay. Although, you know what, years ago, if you had been at Marty's Barber mm. Shop on Main Street in Sag Harbor, you would have run into Elmo. Do you remember that episode? I don't know if I've seen that. Do you ever see that? It was on Sesame Street or something? Oh, uh, like Elmo, like, <laughs> there's a great... Yeah, it was on Sesame Street. When my daughter was little, it was like running in constant loops. It was this little kid that went to get his hair cut oh, at Marty's Barber Shop in Sag that's Harbor. So and Elmo's... The funniest thing was, though, years later, Marty had a sign in, in this window that said, I can't handle kids. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Sesame Street used to do like a lot of that where they would go. And I feel like they came out here yes. a lot. Um, like yeah, I remember yeah, yeah. my kindergarten class was featured in like this like apple. It was like an ode to apples. And they like just had everybody like you know, like march in a circle holding apples and that they had people like eating apples. Mm. Some, some producer must have had a house out here or something. Yeah. Or maybe that, maybe Elmo has a vacation house out here because he's making so much bucks. Turks and Keiko meeting with kids. He can afford further lane. You gotta imagine the licensing on that significant. <laughs> uh, yeah. So we have a few other pieces. I'm looking in the front of the book. These are some of the non-food um, pieces. So we have... Um, a really actually, I, and Dana Shaw was the one who brought this to me, a really kind of cool history piece um, that I think a lot of people will get into on the life and death of the historic Shinnecock Lighthouse, which I actually did not even know existed until Dana brought it up with me as a magazine. Oh, I, yeah. Right. She, she did a great job on that. I, I learned, I learned a lot from, from her article. I, I mean, I knew about the lighthouse, but I didn't know the, all the history of it. And she really takes a deep dive into it. The shot of it coming down is just epic. I did remember hearing about this years ago. I think it was taller than any other lighthouse that we had out here. Yeah. And like the sad time. part of yes. it is it sounds like it was repairable. But it just right. that there was just no will to do it. Um, yeah. And so that's yeah. kind of just led to its demise. And, you know, you think about now, like, can you imagine now if there was like some historic lighthouse and it was, you know, crumbling, but it was like it was still doable. Like you could find if you fundraised, you could get the money together to fix this lighthouse. And everybody was just like, eh. Mm. We'll just, I think we'll just take it down. Like that would never happen. <laughs> yeah, I know you would. Just, you would be flogged now if you did that. Dare to take down a lighthouse? It's like you know, just not a thing to do. So where exactly did this thing stand? Do we know where, where the Coast Guard station is now? So right on by the Ponquag Bridge there. Yeah. Oh, okay. And I wondered if the, I guess that did the need for it change like after the hurricane of. Yeah, 1948 when it when it came down, you didn't need lighthouses anymore, right? Well, you did, but maybe you didn't need them there. Yeah. Oh. I mean, you also had the Shinnecock Inlet that was created during the 38 hurricane. That right. Made things a little bit right, but it seems like that lighthouse 
would have been pretty far back. That's the other thing. It wasn't right on the beach. I mean, it wasn't, but apparently you could see it 12 miles out into the ocean. Because it was so tall. Yeah. It's just, I'm just, it's just, I guess it was more of a guiding beacon for, um, like where along the coast you were rather than warning of rocks because it wasn't close enough to the shore to warn of rocks is my thing. Right. I mean, what do I know? Not a lighthouse engineer, but maybe that's why they tore it down. <laughs> it's like, who built this thing here? We're gonna... <laughs> no, but really like, I highly recommend everybody check that piece out. It's really interesting. I felt like, like Bill, I learned so much um, yeah. reading Dana. Yeah. Piece. The photos are cool. And the photos yeah. are super cool. Um, yeah, and we've got a few other pieces in there. We've got a piece on um, Uber Geek, which is one of, you know, the breweries that have popped up in the last decade. Um, so they're located in Riverhead. So actually J.D. Allen did the piece for us. I think that might be his first magazine piece for us, but you're going to start seeing J.D.'s byline on the regular, which is really exciting. He's a great journalist and we're excited to have him working with us. So did you make all of the recipes that are pictured in the back, Archie? No. So we always have a recipe section and there have in years past, there have been times where Gavin and I have had to roll up our sleeves, uh -huh. and the kitchen. make a lot of food. Yeah. Um, but that was not the case this time. Um, we kind of focused on fall starters and sweets in this issue. Um, I love recipe sections. I use recipes. Um, so like in my dream world, people are picking up this magazine and they're going home and making you know, a simple vegetarian chili from Claude's in Southampton. Kaylin's not. No, come on now. Give her some, give her a I do make chili. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah, this one looks good. Chili's easy. Um, if you wanted to get a little bit more, you know, um, ambitious, shall we say, you could make the Balsam Farms delicata squash and poached pear salad, which has like many different things mm. to it, but looks fantastic. And that's from chef Chris Watts at Gurney's and Montauk. Um, and then the lovely Debbie Geppert, who I adore. Um, she is with Bonfire Coffee House now in Amagansett. People in Amagansett and East Hampton know Debbie from like years at Dreesen's and Bostwick's. She's just the best. And she gave us a pumpkin scone recipe. Um which that sounds like really That's fun. Cool. And then on like the, you know, again, maybe the more challenging um, dessert recipe is we have, and they always give me challenging recipes. Like I, I put these together and I'm like, you know, this is for like the chef, you know, who picks this up. Cause this is, this is a hard one, but it might be worth tackling this winter. If you're like looking for a special holiday dessert, Lulu kitchen um, gave us a profiteroles recipe where everything is made from scratch. Um, it's from Fantastic France, Bill. It's mm -hmm. Fantastic France. Fabulous, Fabulous France. Fantastic France. Fantastic France. <laughs> France. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> they look wonderful. Profiteroles yeah. are dead. So it's all that, as Brian Boyham would say, and much, much more. So much more in the express magazine no i'm really i'm i'm really proud of this one i'm honestly i'm proud of the whole line kaylin always um does a few pieces in every magazine um but we have a really amazing group of writers um that help put this together and brian boyhan um publisher emeritus of the sag harbor express he's been doing the layout on these magazines for decades and they're beautiful um so and once this one was in the bag, he went off to Fabulous France. He did go off to Joshua. Fabulous France. <laughs> and he, when he comes back from Fabulous France, he will find a folder full of things. Another effort. <laughs> the last it's like so fabulous did somebody do an elbow voice? It's like it's F day. <laughs> everybody, let's do F day. Funny. Oh, that's funny. Another F word. Mm -hmm. There we go. So pick it up on the newsstands. Very exciting. And you have to get busy on the next one, right? I do. Well, we're 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 getting there. It's a, it's always challenging, you know. You're working on your holiday book, and you know, yeah. I start at like the end of September. Mm -hmm. It's like working in fashion because that's also a season ahead. You know, when you work in that kind of environment, 
Always- well, and actually in the holiday book, we will have our fashion columnist, um, Lisa Froelich will be returning. She writes in about half of the magazines. Um, and she's actually, how do I pronounce it? I've got to look this up. She is writing. I always pronounce this wrong about, um, personal. She told me how Huga. I have no idea what that hmm. means. Personal Huga style, which is, um, so basically it's a popular Danish concept and lifestyle trend. And it's really about coziness oh. and being content and cozy, cuddly. Mm-hmm. So she's got a fashion piece and holiday book. That yeah. sneak peek. How, how do you spell that word? It's like H-Y-G-G-E or something. Right? Yeah. H-Y-G-G-E. Hmm. Okay. Good. Good to know. It's like cozy, but cooler. It's like a static right? cozy. Static. You got it. Okay. <laughs> Aesthetic cozy. So in other words, not it's like the the sweatshirt that I have that says Kirkland signature on it wouldn't this <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't be it. <laughs> I think it's about like like not leaving the house for two years, you know, I love that part. but not but, really, but sometimes. Not really. No, it's wearing something when you go through the snow to your outdoor sauna, which is also very mm-hmm. Nordic, you know? Okay. Getting ready for winter. Sounds like a good holiday book theme. I've... Yeah. All right, everyone, get out um, there and do your fall baking. Another F word. <laughs> <laughs> Today's letter is F. Sponsored by France. <laughs> Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.